0: Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well being of your staff to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, chairman of the sound agency and five time TED speaker with over 100 million views for my TED talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. It seems simple common sense to create workspaces that support people in being productive, that they enjoy working in, and that they feel proud to be a part of. Sadly, that has not always been the case. When tight budgets meet expensive floor space, the inevitable results are densification and standardization. And for decades, designers and architects have been focusing on the visual and forgetting the huge impact of the other senses, especially noise. To find out exactly what aspects of a workspace matter to people and make a difference to the way they work and feel, what we need is a really authoritative survey that analyzes everything from workstations and noise to the catering, breakout areas, and lighting. Even better, one that allows us to benchmark any workspace against global averages in every minute detail, so that we can identify exactly where we're succeeding and where we need to make improvements. Well, that's exactly what the Leisman Index does with benchmarks on many aspects of the workspace that are now based on more than 800,000 identical completed questionnaires across over 5,000 locations worldwide. Leesman was founded by Tim Oldman, and Tim is my guest on this podcast, where we'll discover some of the survey's key revelations about the do's and don'ts of current and future workspace design. Tim started his career in 1991, initially in transport design and moved into retail, exhibition and then office design. By 2003, he'd begun his ongoing exploration into the strategic thinking behind workspace design. In 2006, he joined Swiss furniture giant Vitra as director of workplace strategy, commissioning several milestone research projects while he was there. By 2009, he was working as an advisor on workplace strategies to some of the world's leading organisations. The analytical tools he developed then led to the launch in 2010 of the Leesman Index, which is now the largest research project of its kind ever undertaken. Tim, could you explain what is the Leesman Index?
1: A measure, an independent measure of how well workplace supports the employees who are using it. Uh, that's it's, its simplest form.
0: And how do you do that? Because obviously people are very different and they have different needs. So is it individual or can it be applied across groups and different types of workspaces?
1: It has to start with the individual. We're a strong believer in uh, user-centric design. So first and foremost, let's understand an employee as deeply as we can, so understand what they're doing, the infrastructures that they need to be the best versions of themselves, um, and then understand how well those infrastructures are supporting them in those roles once we've done that you can then start grouping those individuals into small units into uh, business units into teams into floors within a building perhaps whole buildings segments of a portfolio and then global analysis so whether you take it from individual employee up or a global portfolio perhaps of you know 70 or eighty thousand employees down back to an individual employee it's a a two-way understanding really of that ability for place and space to support employees Versus the individual experience that an employee is having in those spaces.
0: Now, my memory is that you've solved the really difficult problem of comparing apples and pears. In other words, the productivity and experience of a CEO being very different from the productivity and experience of an artist or an accountant. You've managed that by asking two very simple questions, if I remember rightly.
1: It comes down to which activities are important to you in your workplace, and how well are those activities supported and you can ask that of the doorman or the chairman and the functionality within the analysis technique that we've developed uh, enables those individuals to select the individual activities and then tell us that support level so to your point to be able to differentiate the needs difference between say somebody who's highly creative versus somebody who's highly collaborative versus somebody perhaps who's in a, a more insular or super specialist role what's really fascinating there is that the, it also challenges the assumptions so you might look at an incredibly high earner, perhaps within an investment bank, but find that their activity profile is very narrow. So they have three or four or maybe five or six activities fundamentally important to them in their role. You then compare that to perhaps to somebody more junior or newer to the organisation, somebody much earlier on in their career, who might have quite a complex activity profile where they're doing multiple different things during the course of a working day. So it also enables us to challenge some of those assumptions that the higher paid you are, the more complex your work life is. It it certainly doesn't manifest in the data.
0: Well, specialization may require higher paid people who are very, very good at one thing. I suppose that makes some sense to me. What are the activities then that Leisman is focusing on?
1: So we have 21 that we synthesized down when we designed the tool more than 11 years ago to try and understand that. So the 21 activities in theory try and encompass most of what most people do in a working day. You select those that are important to you. So that's the thing that enables us then to to measure things like role complexity or activity complexity. Individual-focused work, desk-based, is a typical one. It's, it's the one that most employees select as relevant to them in their role, down to informal social interaction, which some organisations look at and wonder if that is a, a work activity, but it enables us to measure some of those sort of slightly more periphery things that one might do in a workplace, and then understand their contribution that they make to overall organisational performance.
0: Well, as somebody who's very into communication, I would have thought that is crucial because that's where serendipity lives, isn't it?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the, this is one of those much talked about, much written about propositions, the serendipitous uh, workplace interactions. Truth is they could happen anywhere, right? They can happen actually in the five minutes before a meeting or the 10 minutes after a meeting, the old rather hackneyed proposition of water cooler moments. We also need to you know, consider that a, a water cooler moment and a serendipitous moment might not always be positive there could be negativity in those moments just as much as there might be positivity. So we try and take a more rounded agnostic or non-committal view of what is happening in each one of those activities. The key thing is to understand, is it important to the employee? Because in some of those activities, if we take learning from others, which is one of those 21 activities, often it can be interesting to look at who hasn't selected that as an important activity to them. So it's not just always uh, those who've pre-selected as important. It's sometimes interesting to look at But those who, for whatever reason, have decided that um, for them, that activity isn't part of their work role. And many organizations focusing on that right now without uh, this sort of crazy experiment with distributed working. What are the things that are changing in terms of the importance that we attach to our daily work routines?
0: Yes. I wonder if that uh, willingness to learn from others recedes as people get more and more senior. That would be an interesting correlation to run.
1: It does, it interestingly, Julian. Not by as much as you might dramatically hypothesize, but certainly in the younger generations or those who are new in an organization. So at any age, if you are new to an organization, you attach much more importance to something like learning from others. So how
0: did Leisman start, Tim? What was the genesis of it and how long has it been going and how big is it now?
1: bit of an accident, really. Back in 2008, 2009, really trying to understand and investigate different ways of Measuring the effectiveness ultimately of of corporate workspace became very fascinated with two established methodologies. The first was uh, psychometric profiling, so Myers Briggs or Prism, perhaps two of the more prolific tools that, that listeners might be familiar with. So, the ability to understand somebody's persona and how that played to their strengths in particular roles, looking at how different personality types cluster in certain industries. So, really asking myself whether or not designers could. Uh, better create space that was tuned to the personalities of the users or the the personality types that clustered in different sections of the business. The next thing I came across was uh, a tool called Lean Six Sigma, an error diagnostics, fault diagnostics tool that seeks to remove error and fault within uh, process design. Now, the really interesting realization there is that one of the key aspects of that model is innovate last. What you must first do is, is look and observe all those fault points and remove those from processes. Now, As somebody who trained a long time ago as a designer, that seemed quite alien. I think most designers see a a client engagement as an opportunity to innovate and be creative first and foremost, and hopefully solve uh, a few of the problems along the way as part of that process. So to find a methodology which was almost 180 degrees opposite in its approach to an engagement started to become very interesting. So you put the two together and you think about the personality of an organization and the personality profiles of those within it with those individuals trying to play to their strengths, but be aware of their weaknesses, and then apply that to a much more mechanical manufacturing process originated tool like Lean Six Sigma. And you can see perhaps the opportunities I saw to overlay the two. So I started developing a tool myself uh, to use on my own strategy consultancy work. And then back into 2009, tripped over the idea of basically launching that as a public proposition that anybody could use. Uh, That after the realization that if I was just going to use it in my own consulting work, the one thing I would struggle to do is amass enough data for it to become a benchmarking proposition. So we launched summer 2010, uh, and uh, currently sitting on over 880,000 uh, individual employees who've answered our office based analysis. Almost every single one of those employees answering the, the exact same set of questions. So benchmarking capable across every line. But back in March uh, of last year, we were also uh, fortunate enough to have some very informed clients, one particular who said to us, we're going to need your help measuring home working experience. And so my incredible team in about six weeks did about six months work and we launched a parallel tool that measures the experience of employees working remotely, predominantly from home. And and now as of uh, January, February 2021, sitting on over 160,000 of the same types of responses. And the ability now to do a, a really interesting cross-sectional analysis between the difference between a home to support employees versus the corporate center. A million
0: completed questionnaires in total, a million, I think. And a really interesting idea that you just mentioned is innovation as solution. I think that's a beautiful concept. Well, let's get into the data then, this million surveys that you've got. What are the worst things in modern offices and what are the best?
1: Some of the best things are the ability for us to identify high performance. This is the thing that frankly I take most excitement out of whenever we see the data come in from a client, to recognize what good is, to recognize what outstanding looks and works like from an employee perspective and to see that the, the range of that, that those differences, that, that actually a space that's outstanding for some isn't always outstanding for all. So that that's the first thing I think that we started to realize about five years into the data collection that we could really distinctly isolate those physical features and service features of a workplace that provided a real value add to the employee. So in an employee-centric design proposition, what matters most in giving that uh, that sort of elevated sense of uh, a space, why people gravitate there, why you want to be there, rather than just need to be there to, to undertake the work that you're employed to do. What
0: are those, Tim? I mean, are they the things we would expect, like daylight and so forth, or were there any surprises? I'd love to know what makes a great office for people.
1: The thing that's intriguing there is that you're right, there, there are a sort of range of hygiene factors which one must have in order to have that first stepping stone to high performance. But the things that really are the icing on the cake from an employee experience perspective, and the thing that I get into lots of deep conversations with clients is they're the things that are difficult to value. So that, if you like, the things that employees value most are the things that are most difficult to defend from a financial investment perspective. So things like variety of different types of workspace, and we routinely see that topping the tables in, in terms of performance scores in those high performance workplaces, whereas in our low performance spaces, they're not even recognized by employees as a value proposition, as a, a valuable feature. So atriums and communal space, you know, what is it that communal space adds to the general experience of workplace? Now, these aren't just fickle things, because when you see high performance on these lines, you also follow through with high performance or high satisfaction and agreement with things like uh, my workplace enables me to work productively or enables us to work productively. It's a place I'm proud to bring visitors to. So looking at all of those things that are difficult for a, a client to include within a cost-constrained scheme and really starting to understand and ultimately, perhaps in the future, for us to be able to put a price tag on the return on investment of some of those peripheral parts.
0: It's so important, Tim, because for years we've had bean counters. I mean, I respect the financial profession enormously, of course, but we've had we've had bean counters doing things like densification mm. removing uh, plants and unnecessary bits and pieces standardizing desks because it's cheaper to buy millions of the same thing and leesman is showing us that that doesn't pay off in the end
1: well i think what it shows is it comes with huge risk uh, you know the risk can be mitigated by by investing in other parts or doing those things differently we're not saying to ignore all innovation or creativity but you know value engineering uh, exercises too often first engineer out the very things that employees take value from. So yes, you're absolutely right. That's good news for for those who understand what quality design and quality experience uh, feels like from an employee perspective.
0: I'm naturally interested in the the sensory side of this. What does Leisman reveal to us about, the, we're still talking pre-COVID here about classic no. offices with lots of people going to work every day. Uh, what does it reveal to us about the sensory side of being in an office environment?
1: Let's think about the two aspects of it. The, the ones that interest me are the, are the ones that you can viscerally feel very easily. Um, and then there's the more sort of emotional and internalized responses. I'll, I'll do them in reverse order because the, the emotional response is, is relatively straightforward for us to understand. So things like pride and enjoyment, uh, we can understand the triggers for those. And they tend to be the softer service end spectrum. Things like the hospitality experiences, the coffee and refreshment facilities, the, the value of a, a restaurant or canteen. Uh, And and some really interesting differences there based on culture and geography. But the more physical aspects, the more engineering based is, of course, where where we first met, because some of the very early data started to show us that simple things like noise levels um, have a dramatic impact on the sense of productivity of employees. And statistically, it remains across the data the strongest statistical indicator. Uh, a dissatisfaction with noise is the strongest statistical indicator an employee will then say the workplace does not support their personal productivity so organisations employees architects are all aware of the impact of noise but i don't think anybody really is fully cognizant of the dramatic impact it has on particular activities within the within a workflow day
0: and presumably we're not talking simply about decibel levels we're talking about disturbance the qualitative aspect of noise as well as the quantitative
1: Uh, For sure. Now, obviously, one of the compromises we had to accept when we designed the tool is that ours was a fairly mid-altitude analysis technique. So we describe ourselves like the radiographers in medicine. So all I can tell for sure is that an employee is dissatisfied with noise levels. It requires the client or their advisory team supply chain to get into the detailed nuts and bolts of understanding what it is about noise. But you're absolutely right. It could be noise disturbance. It could, uh, could be a lack of noise as well. Bear in mind, we don't say too noisy. We ask it about noise levels. And and certainly there have been more than one instance where uh, after further investigation, organizations have found that that, that teams actually want a bit of buzz and the office was dead. So it's not always that it's decibel levels or or disturbance. It can be the other way as well.
0: Interesting, because that's a phenomenon known in scientific circles as stochastic resonance, where you introduce a little bit of noise into a system to improve results, like dithering with sound and very much like what we do with MoodSonic, of course, which is to introduce some biophilic sound to help with masking unwanted conversation. What are the other things to avoid for people when they're thinking about office design at the moment?
1: Well, I think if they're they're thinking about office design at the moment, we sit here on 2021 with the future of Place, having gone from the the content of trade magazines and uh, professional bodies annual conferences to being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and and the like. This is a this is a thing that even ex-governors of the Bank of England are talking about the value of workplace. Now, this is a, a unprecedented times, I think, in terms of the focus on employee experience, the role of the physical corporate space in supporting organizational performance. That provides us with an incredible opportunity, I think, to, to think about the design of workplace for the future as being, perhaps being different. One telling question, though, that, that a number of our clients have been asking in their uh, recent surveys is Post-pandemic, how often do you see yourself returning to the corporate workplace? And and a very, very distinct uh, data trend there is that the higher the quality, the experience of the workplace, the more employees want to spend in it. It's it's blindingly obvious, really. But if you have a great workplace and you love being there with colleagues that you respect, post-pandemic, you want to go back. Maybe not full-time, but you certainly want to go back. Whereas those employees who report having a poor experience prior, for any number of reasons are the ones that are saying actually they would prefer to stay at home.
0: So the ratio between home experience and work experience is going to be all important in determining whether people are going to be bothered to make that journey. I guess if you've got a beautiful home and a terrible office, it's very unattractive, but swap that around the other way. Many people don't live in beautiful homes and might have a, a pretty glamorous office, so that's more attractive. So quality is going to be paramount in the future. Of office design, perhaps more than it ever has been in the past. But let's zoom in on that home for a moment. And I'm fascinated to know what your new survey has found about WFH.
1: <laughs> well, again, you know, obviously music to your ears, no puns intended. But the one thing that pretty much every home does better than most of the corporate offices is support any activity that benefits from acoustic privacy better than most of the spaces that are designed for that very work purpose. And I think that's gonna shine a you know really glaring light on the quality of the uh, architecture and uh, design and acoustic uh, considerations that have been applied to most corporate workplaces. And I think increasingly the industry is gonna to have to face up to the idea that uh, physical space that you attract people to uh, in a corporate center must work differently. It must accept that it's done some things pretty poorly. So the the idea that the average home supports our work better than the average office is unavoidable, I think, in the headlines that that will come out of Leisman over the next few months.
0: Presumably not all work, though, because that's working from home supporting concentration, if I could use Jeremy Myerson's work categorisation. But collaboration, that's a different thing. We're all fumbling around with Zoom and whatever. We lose a great deal. In virtual communication, so uh, is this activity-based working writ large now, where we don't have quiet working spaces, we just go home.
1: Mm. Well, I think this is this again. It's it's the sort of nuance that I think we've got to have the discipline and the patience to understand here. Because if we cast our minds to a day before COVID, which would have been a a high collaboration day, is it a full eight hours of collaboration for most people? I think it's it's probably not. You know, there will be moments of focus and concentration in that. Workflow for the highly concentrated roles and for the highly collaborative roles is just not as binary as as one or the other. So I think the, the idea that you would go to a corporate centre for a full eight hours of collaboration and then roll home for days of focus is is not conducive to most people's workflow. It may be to some, but but for most people's workflow, I think it, it's just not, not feasible in my mind. So I think activity-based working, perhaps, it's time has come on the basis that the central proposition of ABW is that an employee should be empowered and provided with a selection of spaces appropriate to support the particular activities they're doing at that point in their working day. So I think employees are going to become more acutely aware of their activity profile. And as long as the employer is open-minded enough to provide a host of different spaces, well-tuned and well-designed to support those particular activities, then most employees, I think, are going to see much more freedom in the future. But a third of employees don't have space at home that adequately supports them. You know, they're sofa surfing or they're jostling for the dining table in a shared flat with friends. And those employees are desperate to come back to to a central corporate workplace and they will need to be provided with the full gambit of infrastructures there as well. So quite how workplace will change in the future, I don't know. But certainly the acoustic design of those spaces, I think, will be under the spotlight. So it
0: sounds to me as though there's going to be a, a complete bonanza for interior designers and architects coming in the next year or two, as we fundamentally rethink the way that office space is being used. There's going to be an awful lot of ripping out and reconfiguring, isn't there?
1: There is, but I, I you know, listeners should definitely go and pick up your TED talk on uh, architects designing with uh, for their eyes and not with their ears, because I think. It may well be there's a bonanza for designers, but I think there's also a risk that the the pandemic and and the data that many different organisations, including us, have been collecting and and highlighting the inefficiencies of uh, many of those workplaces will mean that actually what we're going to see is is experienced designers stepping to the forefront. I I wonder whether we're going to see things like museum designers who are much, much more aware of the experience that a museum visitor has looking at whatever artefacts or whatever experience they were there to view. I think that's where we're going to see a bonanza of of new professionals coming in who curate a day at work. And by a day at work, I don't mean at the corporate workplace, a day of work. This is where my excitement is actually, in a a perhaps a sort of bubbling new understanding, which is is much more user-centric, much more work employee focused, rather than it all being about the architecture and the corporate real estate. Before COVID, the years BC, I think, is where real estate architecture and interior design got to decide how people worked. I think this might be a sort of time for an uprising where employees tell us how they want to work and and organisations craft an infrastructure and service provision around that self-awareness that employees now very much more have than before.
0: I think we've seen something similar to this in history, haven't we, with the Renaissance when architecture went from being on the scale of God to man being the measure of all things and the centre of the way things were designed. So it sounds like we're in for a renaissance in the office.
1: Be exciting, right? I think the idea that these these sort of corporate monuments to brand will be challenged in terms of their functional effectiveness. And I think there may be some other professions that step forward as well. If we think about some of the spaces that, again, you you and I historically have a lot more experience of, things like airports and transport interchanges, the experience that a traveler has of those environments which they, let's face it, they don't want to be there, they want to be at the destination then I think you know we might be able to learn a lot from how those spaces are curated and crafted. It's exhausting if it's poor, and it's part of the trip if it's not. And I think if we could think about workplace more from those types of angles, then I think, yeah, it could be a renaissance for the type of spaces that are created for those employees.
0: I think this puts also the marketing profession back in play really because customer journey is something which has been a familiar concept to many marketers for a long time in designing, whether it be entertainment parks or other kinds of touch points with customers. And that's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it here? Putting a human journey, whether it's a customer, an employee or whoever, at the center and designing the thing around that.
1: Yeah, whether it's it's marketing and packaging or whether actually it's perhaps more product designers for whom rapid prototyping and the concept of failing fast is much more comfortable and much more akin to the way that they might work. If, if any of the listeners want to do some more homework, I'd really recommend Neil Gibb's book called The Participation Revolution, which gives a series of case studies of products which have been designed from user side, so from the consumption side of the supply chain. And I think that's, that's where we could see a, a, a really exciting period for workplace design or work design supported by places where those environments are crafted in a more sort of product solution fashion where you think about the ergonomics and the human factors relationship that people have with place and their surroundings and the hard and soft services they need to be provided with to optimally deliver in those roles that they're employed in. It's it's a rare thing, isn't it? In a job interview it's it's all about what the employee can do for the employer. I'd like to see that turning around a bit where the employee is actually saying to the employer, okay, what are you giving me? You know, I'm I'm pre-qualified for this role and I think I can be awesome, but I want to check that you're giving me the infrastructures and the services and the ecosystem that enable me to be the best version of myself because life's too short.
0: I think we were seeing that starting pre-COVID as well with the more enlightened employers putting say, well-being at the top of their list and recruiting on the quality of their offices and their well-being commitments and so forth. So it sounds to me as though COVID, with all its terrible consequences, has at least given us an opportunity here to, to reset, to reconsider, and there may be a benefit for millions of people in the future that arises out of this.
1: I certainly agree. I think it's an exciting time for the the reason for having Workplace. And I think uh, if you're a CEO, CFO, Head of Real Estate, Head of Facilities Management, Head of Service Design, even Heads of Technology who, let's face it, have done an incredible job of of mobilising global workforces in the crisis management phases last spring. But I think for those professionals to actually now have a much deeper understanding of the value of place in how those organisations perform where an organization is today and where it's trying to get to, to have such a much deeper understanding of the role of place should be a you know, revolutionary period for, the, um, for, the, for, for that equation.
0: Well, and the Leisman Index will be tracking that, I'm sure. Where do people go if they want to find out more about the benchmark and about even employing it uh, for their own companies?
1: So at leismanindex.com, everything's there. We have two sides of the business. There's the solution that employers buy and deploy across their employee base gives them that radiographer x-ray. We don't do anything else from a fee perspective, so it is just an independent analysis. There's no vested interest in the the survey findings that we will present back. But anybody who goes to leasemanindex.com will also find a whole heap of outpourings of research. We have an incredible research and insights team led by Dr. Peggy Ross, who are constantly playing with that data. We take the responsibilities very seriously to see what that data can tell us. And so there's also a a stack of useful resources there that employers can take to think about that future workplace proposition for them.
0: Terrific. And we'll put those links onto our podcast page, as we always do. Tim, thank you very much for your time. This has been a fascinating insight into the possible future, which faces a great number of us. And uh, we will look forward to experiencing it in all the senses, of course, is the other thing, because this customer journey is in... Five senses, not just one. So, you know, I can continue talking about architects using their ears and their noses, even.
1: (laughs) It's been a pleasure as always, too.
0: Thank you, Tim. There's a consistent message coming through this series of interviews with experts on workspace that for all its ills, the pandemic has created a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us to reset, reconsider and fundamentally recast our thinking about the spaces that we create for people to gather together and work in. From Oliver Heath, we learned that we need to reconnect with nature for our well-being. From Jeremy Meyerson, we learned that workspace quality will be the defining parameter if we want to attract people back to work. From Sally Augustin, we learned that we must pay attention to all the senses when designing anything, especially communal spaces. And from Tim Oldman, we've learned that the successful workspaces of the future will put the employee, not the organization or the brand, at the center of the design process. There's plenty more to explore, from sustainability to acoustics, furniture, technology, and lighting design. But I feel pretty confident by now that the successful workplace of the future is going to be different, in a good way. Biophilic, multisensory, high quality and offering varied spaces that are fashioned with employee needs in mind, rather than value engineering based economies or mindless standardization or homage to the brand or to the organization, which of course does not actually have any feelings at all. A workspace renaissance is upon us. Let's embrace it. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, Designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.